electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight it is one of the hottest AI plays on Wall Street, but an investor lawsuit alleges C3 AI may not be all that it appears. We have an in-depth report you will not get anywhere else. Is the gig up on remote work? One tech founder says it's time to get back to the office. He will be here to make the case. Call it clash of the tech titans. Meta and Apple prepare to face off for headset supremacy. But does anyone even want one of those headsets? Goldman Sachs losing luster, more job cuts, high-level departures, and a trading slump. What is behind the investment bank's funk? And how's this for heat? The Miami Heat and Florida Panthers aim to make sports history and maybe put a ton of coin in one lucky or gutsy gambler's pocket. We'll tell you all about it. That and much more all through the show. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon. As always, out west, a big hour ahead. But first up on last call, is it about to be a bummer of a summer for the American economy? There are some signs it could be. And please do not blame the messenger. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan throwing up a major red flag at a conference today, warning that consumer spending is slowing. Not exactly what you want to hear from the head of America's second biggest bank. And look at what is happening in real time. Dollar General plunging today after cutting its outlook. Auto parts retailer Advance Auto losing a third of its value yesterday on the same thing. And Target, Kohl's, Macy's and more have seen their stocks tumble recently. And it is not just about retailers. Goldman Sachs out with a new job cut warning saying it's a tougher environment on Wall Street. And after more than three years on a pause, people are going to have to start paying back their student loans with a median monthly payment of $222 per borrower and an average payment of $393. That certainly could take a bite out of consumer spending. And then there is this, maybe the most watchworthy metric of all. Apollo Investments notes that people are beginning to pay their credit cards late or not at all. Delinquency rates, they are popping. That's the far right of your screen. And you can see they are not at 2007 or 2008 levels but they are inching closer with 20 and 30-something delinquencies rising the fastest. And keep in mind, these delinquencies on credit cards are before the student loan repayments kick back in, which would be later this summer if the Fiscal Responsibility Act, a.k.a. debt ceiling deal, gets passed by the Senate. Now, of course, all this does not mean it will be a bummer summer. If you are willing to work, you can find a job. Airports, restaurants. They're packed. Consumer spending has been strong. We just did a segment yesterday on how Vegas is printing money. And look at this, Lululemon, the pricey athleisure brand, just raised its full-year guidance with shares soaring after hours. And by the way, if you didn't notice today, 
The S&P 500 closed at its highest level since August of last year and now up more than 10% this year. But based on the forward-looking metrics that we just showed you, there is some reason to be a little bit concerned about the consumer and about the economy. So let's dig in and bring in RSE Ventures co-founder and CEO Matt Higgins, Charles Schwab, Chief Fixed Income Strategist Kathy Jones, and 248 Ventures Chief Strategist Lindsey Bell. Thank you all for joining us, Matt. People probably know you from Shark Tank. You're an investor. You buy, sell, and build companies. From where you sit, is the economy about to turn down? I think it is, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, we've been waiting for this recession that we've been predicting for such a long time to get going. Inflation has been stubborn. Consumer spending has been stubborn. And what you're finally seeing is now the consumer pulling back. Costco reported that we're downgrading our meat. The one last holdout apparently is travel. So UK, it's a bummer summer, but I think uh, we're going to go out with a bang with a lot of travel spending. And once those credit uh, student loan payments start in July, I think that's the first domino. Yeah, I think that's why we threw it in there. 222 median payment, 393 average, because there's a few borrowers that owe a couple hundred thousand each. They skew that average higher. Kathy, I didn't even mention the new orders index. I didn't want to get all wonky on this ISM type stuff. But if you look at new orders for manufacturing, they're now the lowest since the pandemic hit. Yeah, um, the manufacturing sector is already in recession by, you know, by all counts. Uh, orders have been low. The overall activity has been low. You're starting to see hours worked in the manufacturing sector go down. And that is that does relate to the consumer because those workers may be getting they may still have a job, but they're working fewer hours. So the paycheck they take home is lower. So, you know, yeah, things have slowed down substantially on the manufacturing mm. side already. And I, I agree with Matt. It's moving towards the uh, the retail side pretty quickly here. But, you know, that's what uh, tight monetary policy is designed to do. This is what the Fed is trying to accomplish. You know, and the economy, Lindsay, is far bigger on the services side. When the pandemic hit, you're locked down. Everybody wanted stuff, right? They wanted treadmills. They wanted bikes. They wanted computers. Then the pandemic ends. People start to go out. They want things. They want experiences. They want to fly. They want to go to Vegas. Is the services side of the economy strong enough to outweigh any weakness in manufacturing that Kathy was just talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. We've been watching the services sector for, for a while now. What you have seen in some of these PMI reports across the globe is that it is services that is driving all sorts of IMM, ISM and PMI numbers. Um, and so that's what we're going to watch, too, because it's also driving higher levels of inflation. It's become much more sticky. Prices paid for services has remained higher as prices paid for goods has come down. So that's the question. But I'm in the camp where the consumer... They remain resilient. And while we've got uh, a slew of disappointing earnings from some of these retailers, what I would say is that the tone, I think, across the board is that is that the, con- the customer, the consumer, they are cautious. And that's not surprising, especially given what we've been through at, at the end of the first quarter and into the beginning of the second quarter here with regards to the banking crisis and, and the debt crisis. You see mm. the consumer lose confidence. We, this happened in 2011. Uh, they lose confidence and they also they pull back their spending in periods like that. So I think they're confused, but I think they remain resilient. Well, and Lindsay, I'll go back to you because one of the mantras that I've been saying for, I don't know, two decades now 
And if you're new to the show or new to the network or whatever, the stock market is not the economy. I know it tends to get conflated. Stock markets can often vary wildly from what the underlying economic fundamentals are. You just heard me talk about the S&P 500 up 10 percent this year. It's historically above the, the average gain for a full year, Lindsay. So what is the stock market telling us about the economy? Well, the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism, right? The stock market is going to bottom before the economy bottoms. So the, the stock market is looking out to 20, the end of 2023, probably actually 2024 at this point. Usually people start looking at 2024 estimates mid-year. So that's what the stock market is looking at. Earnings in 2024 right now looking at over 11% growth, which could come down um, to more average numbers. But still, that's really great. I think what 2023 is, it's a continuation of a normal of an economic environment that, that preceded the pandemic. What we saw was a big snap back in 2021 after the 2020 um, decline. And 2022 and 2023, you know, 2022 was a rebound and 2023 yeah. is kind of we're flattening out those three weird years. So 2024 is what I'm looking forward to. You know, Matt, you help uh, turn around and fix businesses. Got a great new book out, by the way. It's called Burn the Boats, which I just I just love the concept of that. So if you're going to advise, we got a lot of probably small business owners watching CNBC, watching Last Call right now. They are a little bit worried about this. What is your advice to them? My advice to them is, honestly, credit is going to dry up even worse than it is right now. We're forgetting that. We still have a regional bank crisis to deal with. It just sort of took a hiatus for whatever reason. It's only going to get worse. $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate needs to be refinanced by 2025. Those regional banks are going to continue to tighten up their lending. It's going to be a lot harder to get money. So buckle down, hoard cash. Yeah, a bunch of those stocks. Again, not the economy, but a bunch of those bank stocks fell again earlier this week. Kathy, how concerned are you? if at all, by the way, about the regional bank credit tightening on the macro economy. Oh, I think it's really significant. Um, you know, about uh, 60% of commercial and industrial loans go through small and regional banks. These are not banks that um, typically play, you know, in the in the big mergers and acquisitions and things like that, but they finance everyday business activity. And uh, as, uh, as Matt said, they're tightening up credit. Um, we saw some of the comments from the Dallas Federal Reserve Board's uh, survey of business as the real estate um, folks are saying, hey, there's no liquidity available at all at any price. So it's going to be pretty significant, I think. And those small business owners are going to have to find other sources of, uh, of financing or at least have to deal with much higher cost of capital, which is going to affect their, obviously, their outlook, their earnings, their ability to invest in higher yeah. and go Great forward. Point. It's not just if you can get a loan, it's what you pay for the loan if and when you can get one. Great point. Kathy, Lindsay, Matt, thank you all very much. All right. In the meantime, speaking of the stock market, here's what happened to your money today. And as we noted, a six month closing high for the old S&P 500, up 10 percent of the year. That's about the historical annual average gain. So let's find out if this market has any more mojo left in it. As we showed you the other day, most of the gains are just from a few huge stocks. But hey, you'll take it anyway, right? Inside the market, the biggest winner of the day, Match Group, the dating app, up 10 percent. The biggest dud, Dollar General, the name we talked about, down almost 20%. A quick look at futures for tomorrow. Again, very thinly traded. Take it with a grain of sea salt. There they are, though, slightly in the green. All right, up next on Last Call, is this the 
tech clash of the year. Facebook and Apple prepare for battle of the dueling headsets. Plus, the enterprise software company C3AI made headlines earlier this year as the stock price skyrocketed. But now, the company is the subject of an investor lawsuit. Coming up, its CEO addresses the allegations. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. All right, it's time for tomorrow's news tonight. First up, Arizona limiting new home construction in the Phoenix area. It is due to, what else? Dwindling water supply. Officials in the area have ruled there isn't even enough groundwater in the area for projects that have already been approved. Much of Arizona has been in a huge drought for years, and many have been warning about a water crisis for decades. All right, up next, Boeing has delayed its Starliner astronaut mission indefinitely This after discovering additional issues with the capsule. The crew was most recently scheduled for a test flight on July 21st, and that was rescheduled from a previous delay. Finally, big activist investor Trians, co-founder and chief investment officer Ed Garden, is stepping down. According to reporting for The Wall Street Journal, Nelson Peltz is reshuffling the top ranks to make way for the next generation of leaders. Garden was once thought to be a potential successor to Peltz, Instead, he will stay on as a senior advisor to the firm. In the meantime, Apple and Meta are gearing up for a mixed reality melee. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg unveiling the company's latest VR headset. It's called the MetaQuest 3. This just days before Apple expected to debut its own headset. Joining us now for more on these competing gadgets, our own Julia Borston and Steve Kovac. Julia, I'm going to start with you because... We know kind of what the Facebook slash meta thing is. You put it on, you walk around looking kind of like a Roblox character. What is the Apple headset going to be? And why is it supposed to cost $3,000? Yeah, Brian. Well, first I want to explain what it was that Mark Zuckerberg... I want to first explain what Mark Zuckerberg announced today, why he did it today, and then I'll let it go over to my colleague, Steve, to explain what he is expecting from Apple next week. But I think the key thing here is just that Meta and Apple have really been facing off on so many different issues for so long. And this was an occasion where Mark Zuckerberg said, I know that Apple's going to be unveiling its new headset next week, and we are going to get ahead of that. The key thing here is the price point, $499. 
$1,000. The headset doesn't actually launch until the fall, but they were getting out ahead of Apple's announcement now, and they were highlighting the fact that this new headset is lighter, it's faster, it's supposed to be much higher quality. There are hand controllers with haptics so you could feel what's going on here. And they're saying this is a better functioning device and you're gonna have access to 500 games. Now, the question for Apple, and I'm curious to hear what my colleague Steve Kovac is hearing, is that Apple is less about the, the idea of being for the masses and more about having a device that's super high end and then bringing it to the masses. So my question is what the price point is gonna be of this Apple device and are they gonna be entering um, ready to ship millions of these? What it sounds like is that they're starting slowly with these, Steve, what are you hearing? Yeah, so it's gonna work similarly, Julia. It's uh, the Apple device, just like the Meta one that was announced today, it's said to have those cameras on the outside that allows uh, the real world images to pass through onto a screen on the inside. You're gonna be hearing this a lot, guys. It's called mixed reality, not augmented reality, not virtual reality, mixed reality. And I know this is really confusing, but it gives you the option to use augmented reality with digital images placed over the real world. And then you can kind of dial it up to full virtual reality for those immersive experiences, especially video games. Now to Julia's point, this thing is expected to be massively expensive. There have been reports ranging from three to $4,000 to put that in perspective. The iPhone average selling price is about a thousand bucks and they sell about 200 million of them. But I'll, Brian, I'm going to point to analyst Ming-Chin Kuo, who is so tied into the supply chain and what the expectations are there. He's predicting only as much as 300,000 units sold this year from Apple. So this is going to be a kind of niche product for Apple as it tries to figure out what this space actually is. I know it's not out yet, Steve, but you threw out a lot of $1,000 words. Mixed reality, augmented reality. Get used to it. Well, yeah, but what does that mean? What exactly... What I do, we have an idea of what a practical application of what am I doing with my iPad, with the Apple goggles, yeah. looking at some, what am I doing? Am I pretending to walk around the streets of Rome by looking at the Maps app? What? That's part of it. And look, that's the whole thing. That's the whole uh you know, sticking point right now, we're seeing all these companies kind of kitchen sink it and throw everything they can into these devices and kind of hope the users figure it out. For example, I'll point to what Meta has been doing. They've kind of realized there's a fitness uh, interest in this where you do these virtual VR workouts. Uh, they've also done things, uh, obviously gaming is one of them, but you know, it's really yeah. just gonna be up to the developers. And that's why Apple's announcing it at their developers conference to come up with cool use cases uh, for this device to really make it work. And that's that's actually a kind of a risk for Apple, putting mm. the fate of this device into developers, not yeah. necessarily charting I got a, Julia, is it wrong? I got a little Google Glass it, vibe here. I don't know. <laughs> this is very different. I mean, look, the, I, I've done a lot of demos of these. I've used the mixed reality. What it basically means is you can be in the world around you and then have something virtual right in front of your face. And there's something very different about that than a fully VR experience. I think what Steve is mentioning here is this question of what is the use case, right? We know there's a gaming use case. Meta has proved that there's a real use case when it comes to fitness, but it's still unclear if this is gonna be a really mass market device. 
Are people going to think about a VR, AR headset like it's a gaming console and have them mm. in millions and millions of homes around the world? Is it going to be a gaming console type device um, or is it going to be something that's even more mass market appeal than gaming? Something like that moment when everyone went out and bought a DVD player. Um, so is this going to be an iPad moment? Is this going to be a gaming console moment? And I think what's going to really be crucial here is actually having both of these devices come out at the same time this fall, presumably around the same time. There might be enough attention to the value of VR that it, and AR that it could actually drive more adoption. But I, still I actually, plenty of big questions, Lou. We, we showed the video of the video game, and I'm assuming the person is moving their arms like with the sword. So I just thought of a good application, which is, to your point, exercise, not an exercise app. But as opposed to sitting down and just having a, you know, a, a controller or your computer, you're actually getting a workout while you kill demons and dragons. You can do that now. You can do it now. Yeah, they have that on Meta. Yeah. There you go. It's you and me, Kovac. You're basically, you're basically Mark Zuckerberg. We'll Look play Elder Rings. Is that it? That's a, did I get that right? <laughs> Elden. Elden. I was close. El, for me, it's Elder. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Steve and Julia. Thank you very much. Elder Rings is something else. You're at the carousel with your sweetie at Coney Island. All right, still ahead. More last call. How's that for a tease? Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to Fight Over Remote Work, front and center this week. Look at this. Amazon workers holding a massive walkout in a number of offices. Over 2,000 employees reportedly walked out of the job yesterday, with more than 1,000 walking out of Amazon's global headquarters in Seattle alone. Remember, these are mostly corporate employees who work in an office. They're not warehouse workers. They're not drivers who mostly cannot work remotely. And they are upset because Amazon has said white-collar employees are required to be in the office at least three days a week. Some employees say that mandate is disrupting to their lives and fundamentally unfair. And breaking a short time ago, Meta, we just talked about them, now reportedly telling its employees they must be in the office at least three days a week beginning in September. Our next guest is fired up on this issue, tweeting yesterday that, quote, remote is a great, flight, great lifestyle, not a great way to build a company. Joining us now is Kraft Ventures founder David Sachs. Three days a week, David, and the pushback. I, I get we're in studio. A lot of our staff was never able to work remotely. Why is work from home maybe not just a bad deal for the company, but maybe ultimately a bad deal for the workers in some way? Well, the only thing that's a negative for the workers is that I think they feel culturally disconnected from the company. It is it, it does get old uh, working from home and not interacting with employees, never going into an office. I think there there is something about that culturally that's not so great for employees long term. But I think a lot of employees do think it is a wonderful lifestyle. I mean, to basically be able to work whenever you want, wherever you want. Uh, basically decide how many hours you work, 
of course, most employees like that. The, the question is whether it's good for companies. And I would argue that for the same reason employees like being able to make the decision between how much leisure time they're going to have and how much work time they're going to have, uh, a lot of companies are on the opposite side of that trade-off, and they want to make sure that they're getting a certain yeah. number of hours of work. So I, I think it's not such a great deal for the company. We talk to companies all day long, on air, off air. I've talked to a lot of people about this, and there are a lot of employees, David, that are incredibly productive at home, more productive perhaps at home. They're happier. Child care issues are solved. They save money in the commute. But then I've also talked to business leaders who will whisper in my ear and say, I've got employees who I know are working basically two-hour days. I feel like the shift was, it is a power shift. It was about the other P, the pandemic, and now it's about power. Employees had the power. Do you feel that is shifting back toward the companies if the economy does slow down? Yes, I think so. I think that uh, employees had the leverage uh, when the economy was really hot. And unemployment's still really low, to be sure. But I can tell you that in the tech industry, there have been a ton of layoffs over the last year. I think software is already in a recession. And I, so I think the leverage has shifted back to companies. I think to the extent that working from home is effectively a, a, an employee benefit, as opposed to something that truly makes the company more productive, I think companies are reassessing that. Um, I, th I think what you said, Brian, is true, that for a lot of employees, they are as productive at home. I think for the best employees that who are, basically can fully manage their own motivation and don't need any external motivation, I think they can be very productive at home. But but just because it's it works for the best employees doesn't mean it works for all employees. And the problem that I think a lot of these companies have is they basically declared until recently that the whole company can work from home uh, as much as they want, whenever they want. And I don't I don't think that a fully remote strategy works uh, for just about any company. And I think now you're seeing the correction to that. Yeah, well, we forget, I think it was 80 to 85% of America, David, never was able to work from home. The people in the grocery stores driving the trucks, they were the ones that were doing all the work for us. They, they never got to work remotely, so I can understand that as well. We, can, we can't relitigate the past, but how do we solve it going forward? Is there a solution, and you've bought and built companies, um, is there a solution where you say to somebody, you're a 33-year-old rising star, you come in five days a week because you want to, we're going to pay you more, even at the same level, same job, as maybe the 55-year-old who's not going to advance, been there a while, but would prefer to not commute because they don't need the exposure. It's hard to do, but is that a potential solution? I think the problem that we're dealing with here is that we have to, companies have to think about more than what's just good for the individual employee. They have to think about what is effective for them as a team. And the reality is that there's some jobs that can be done individually and, and, and sort of in isolation. So take that 10x coder, that 10x engineer who spends most of their day writing code, or take a field sales rep who spends their time in their territory selling large enterprise deals. I can understand why those employees can remain fully remote. I mean, their achievement is very easy to measure, and their jobs are primarily about, again, individual achievement. But there's so many other jobs in the company where performance is hard to measure and it is dependent on a mm. team dynamic. Uh, I think a lot of jobs in on the go-to-market side of the business, marketing, 
product management, a lot of sales jobs, a lot of operations jobs. The performance of the individual depends on the culture of the company and the team dynamic and who else is around them to answer questions. And so this idea that everybody can just be fully atomized working from home, I think it eventually leads to yeah. a huge breakdown in the productivity of these companies. And I think first and foremost, companies have to think about how do we go back to fixing that problem? And then you can start figuring out some of these uh, benefits for individual employees. Yeah, and wondering how to make sure that younger people get the exposure. By the way, got a little breaking news right now. Senator Chuck Schumer in New York saying that they should have an agreement on the debt deal tonight. Got some notes here from NBC News and others that suggest that the Democratic senator, very powerful senator, has indeed wrangled enough votes. Likely the debt ceiling bill, which is actually called the Fiscal Responsibility Act, will pass tonight. David, you got a take on the debt ceiling bill? Well, I, th I think I think McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, did his best to basically get some improvement here. Uh, you know, at the at the end of the day, the the Republicans have a very razor thin majority in the House. He only has a five seat majority to work with. Uh, the Democrats control the Senate and the White House, so I think that the amount he could really get done was was pretty limited. I think this is the the deal he got is better than nothing, but uh, it's not going to do. A tremendous amount to slow down the, uh, the the massive deficits and and debt problem that we have in this country, but again, I'll give him credit for getting something done. We let off the show talking about some of the mixed economic signals: rising credit card delinquencies, student loan repayments under this deal are going to kick back in, trillion in credit card debt, a lot of retail stocks starting to warn, but yet services hot, airports are packed, restaurants are packed. What's the David Sachs take? on the U.S. economy over the next six to 12 months? You know, I've been very bearish because everything I'm seeing in startup world and software world is we're already in a recession. I mean, all of, you know, I, I invest in a lot of B2B software companies, and I can tell you that the market for software has been cooling off or been recessionary for about a year now. Uh, we're seeing seat contractions instead of seat expansion. We're seeing uh, enterprises sharpen their pencils and demand more and cut vendors. So we, we've we already been in a recession here in Silicon Valley. And I'm actually have been surprised that the rest of the economy has been so resilient. So I tend to be somewhat bearish. And I think the rest mm. of the economy is going to kind of catch up to what I've been seeing in Silicon Valley for the past year. Very quickly, guys, I'm sorry. I got to ask David this. We, we've been all over this banking crisis as much or any other show. Are we over or underestimating the negative longer term impact of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and others failing and the rise in rates? No, I, I think we have a slow motion banking crisis in this country. As long as the yield curve is inverted, uh, banks have a business model that doesn't work. I mean, they've got a negative net interest margin, right? Because the business model of a bank is to borrow short and lend long. And if the yield curve is inverted, that model doesn't work. So banks are under incredible pressure. They'll continue to be under huge pressure as long as the yield curve is inverted mm. until the Fed basically cuts rates. So I would expect to see more bank failures over time. And the only reason we haven't seen more already is because the Fed took extraordinary action with the uh, bank term funding program. So I think if it wasn't for that intervention by the Fed in mid-March, you would have already seen more of a bank run in this country. You know, you sound like Michael Milken. We interviewed Michael Milken at his conference. He said banking 101, borrow short, lend long. It shouldn't be that complicated, but they screwed it up, and now we all may pay. David Sachs, really appreciate your views. Thank you. Thank you. All right, still ahead. AI is Wall Street's favorite new buzzword, and a few stocks have benefited more than the ones who claim 
it as its ticker. C3 AI shares up more than 200% since the beginning of the year, but an investor lawsuit alleges CEO Tom Siebel inflated metrics to boost the stock. That story. Welcome back. One of the biggest beneficiaries of Wall Street's AI hype, it's a company called C3 AI. Shares already up more than 200% this year. But short sellers and a high short interest percentage threaten to disrupt that momentum, as does an investor lawsuit alleging CEO Tom Siebel misrepresented metrics with one of their largest customers. Yasmin Karam has the story. Competing in the artificial intelligence revolution, California billionaire Tom Siebel... AI has all of a sudden become king. And his company, C3AI, trading under the ticker AI on the New York Stock Exchange. Shares of the company tripled earlier this year on the hype around AI. We seem to be the name of the game. But there are also allegations Siebel has misrepresented his company. This is about a company that used smoke and mirrors to go public. Reed Cathrine, who previously represented investors in reaching a settlement against Theranos, is now behind a new investor lawsuit against C3AI, alleging the company misled investors that it had access to a 12,000-person sales organization as part of its partnership with Houston-based energy technology company Baker Hughes, a C3AI client that uses its AI solutions and sells the product to companies in the oil and gas industry. The first instance being in a pre-IPO filing that said we are jointly marketing and selling with the active engagement of Baker Hughes, which has a 12,000-person sales organization. At an interview in C3AI's headquarters, Siebel stood by his statements about the size of the sales force. Did you say the 12,000 people were working with Baker Hughes to sell the C3AI product? I believe it's on the order of 12,000. On a call, you said in partnership with Baker Hughes, we have 12,000 people selling every single day into the oil and gas industry. And that was said about 13 times within that year. Really? What were the dates? I don't, I don't remember saying it 13 times. Here are some of those 13 times. They have 12,000 people selling with us around the world every day. Come on, for a company like us to get 12,000 people. 12,000 people selling with us. 12,000 people. I have 12,000 people selling for me at Baker Hughes. You have 12,000 people working with us. Dan Brennan, a senior vice president at Baker Hughes who oversees the partnership, was at C3 the day we interviewed Siebel. We've got a large sales force. I couldn't tell you what the exact number is. After initially being unable to quantify the size of the sales force, Brennan later told CNBC he estimated that the 12,000 figure was in the ballpark. I'm not certain what the number is today, okay? It was represented to us at one point in time, those 12,000. I'm not certain what the number is today. The lawsuit says the publicity about the massive Baker Hughes sales force artificially inflated C3 stock. Siebel and other insiders took advantage of this by selling more than 11 million shares. I think that if you look at the percent of my ownership in the company, that was a very small percentage. I'm still the largest shareholder, and I have a substantial commitment to the company. And then the cards came tumbling down. They had to admit that the smoke was just smoke. And there wasn't 12,000 people there. Catherine points to a statement Siebel made in a December 2021 earnings call, and he alleges it reveals the company never had the full resources of the repeatedly touted 12,000-person sales force. 
they really weren't the people with the relationships, and they weren't the people with the quotas, and they weren't the people with the deep industry expertise. Catherine's four investors allege the multi-month lag on that disclosure was one of the factors that cost them more than $1.2 million. In a motion to dismiss, attorneys for C3AI don't address the exact number of the sales force, instead calling Siebel's numerous statements about the thousands of salespeople classic puffery that no reasonable investor would have taken literally, adding the number touted was obvious hyperbole. C3 AI attorneys say it doesn't matter what the Salesforce statements were. The partnership with Baker Hughes was in part responsible for increasing revenue. Two former Baker Hughes employees who asked not to be identified due to fear of repercussions told us while there are 12,000 total salespeople at the company, they are not all trained and qualified to sell the C3 AI product. A 2021 agreement between C3 and Baker Hughes shows that C3 would train up to 60 Baker Hughes sales personnel on its product free of charge. A Baker Hughes spokesman said the company has trained well beyond 60 employees, but wouldn't clarify a total. How do your investors understand the difference between puffery when it comes to the business and factual statements? I can't speak for them. I think you have to ask them. After our interview, C3's communications team emailed a statement which read, Mr. Siebel stated that C3 AI had access to 12,000 to a 12,000 person sales organization at Baker Hughes because he believed it to be true and has no reason to believe it is not true today. I also asked a former SEC official about this puffery, as Siebel's attorneys call it. The former official said that you're allowed to burnish your brand, but you can't do so by changing or fabricating the numbers that are important to investors. Brian? Yeah, it's been outside of the lawsuit. There's also two short seller reports circulating on C3AI, not to mention about a third, about 29% of the company's public float is currently sold short. In other words, people are betting against it. That's an unusually high percentage. Is there concern about this Baker Hughes relationship in either of those reports? There are questions over C3's relationship with Baker Hughes, not just the sales force, but about C3's unbilled receivables, meaning money that's owed but has not yet been paid. Baker Hughes, one of C3's biggest customers, has the highest amount of unbilled receivables, over 91% in the quarter that just ended. Now, I asked Siebel about this. He said he has no concerns over Baker Hughes's payment plan. Also worth noting, in April, Baker Hughes announced it divested 1.7 million C3 AI shares. Despite the optics of this, Brian, Baker Hughes says its commitment to C3 AI remains the exact same. You know, the stock's been trading really like a meme stock in a way, up 200% this year. And you have to think at least some of it is because of its glamorous ticker, AI. But has this company, which is probably new to a lot of our viewers, always been about AI? Well, part of the mystery around this company is that it has undergone many, many name changes to correspond with what's hot in the market at that time. In 2009, it was founded as C3 Energy up until 2016 when it changed to C3 IoT. Brian, I'm sure you remember when Internet of Things had a brief moment in the sun. And then in 2019, C3 IoT rebranded to what we now know as C3 AI. Brian? Yasmin Karam with the... Uh Interesting and in-depth report on C3 AI. Yasmin, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, layoffs, big-time departures, deal-making droughts, and a trading slump all at one company. 
What exactly is going on at Goldman Sachs? That's next. All right, welcome back. Say it's been a tough week or tough year for Goldman Sachs and its investors and employees may be an understatement. The bank is making another round of cuts on top of the layoffs. This week, Goldman announcing its global head of sustainability, Dina Powell-McCormick, will be leaving the bank. Powell-McCormick's departure is one of several high-profile executives to leave the company under CEO David Solomon. And it's been tough on investors, too. Shares down 7% this year, even as the S&P 500 is up. Maybe random but interesting. Goldman's market cap of 105 billion or so is less than that of Morgan Stanley, which has fewer assets. So, what exactly is going on? Joining us now is New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan and New York Times reporter Kate Kelly. You know, Kate Goldman is the company everybody always wanted to work for. Why are so many high-level executives leaving? Well, Brian, this has been a phenomenon over the last several years that I wrote about as long ago as two years ago at the Times. Um, They really have seen an exodus of senior partners. I think some of it is cultural. I think one of the interesting things about David Solomon, who's now grown into the job over the course of, I think, four or five years at this point, um, is that the board wanted him to sort of modernize the company, if you will, not do away with the partnership, but sort of modernize it, make it more bottom line oriented, a little less clubby, perhaps. And I think some of the senior partners who had long legacies there just didn't like that. And they didn't like the style that he brought to the table. Um, So you started to see some departures and some real key people like Greg Lemkaw, who interestingly went to join uh, Michael Dell's uh, money management firm. And that's where Dina is now going to emerged MSD plus BDT, <laughs> a lot of initials there, yeah. uh, which is another uh, investment boutique run by another Goldman alum. So oh. you've seen the talent drain. I-, I think in some ways Solomon is delivering on what he was asked to do. I mean, the stock has done tremendously well under his watch despite the givebacks that they had today and that they've had in recent months, they're still yeah. well off where we're well above rather where they were in 2019. But there's definitely a lot of turmoil and it's been a consistent theme really since Solomon took over. Lydia, are you hearing grumbling? I know you got your ear to the Wall Street grindstone. Are you hearing some grumbling from people about David Solomon's leadership? You know it. It's more than ever. I mean, they're in a tough position. Obviously, every major bank is facing the same hurdles, the deal drought, the trading slump. That is an issue across the board. And when you're facing that, you can't actually increase revenue. So you have to cut costs to make sure that you enhance what earnings there are. So they have uh, unveiled a $1 billion plan to cut costs. And that unfortunately means, you know, smaller compensation, and more layoffs. But I think what's been tricky at Goldman is this cultural problem. You've seen Morgan Stanley has had layoffs, but Goldman hasn't just had layoffs. They've had three rounds of layoffs, which is just disastrous for culture. People are on edge constantly, even more than they already were. They're frustrated they're not getting more compensation. We reported the free coffee perks. Those are over. So it's a very different era at Goldman Sachs. And the fact that they're looking at a third round of layoffs in less than a year is just a disaster for a lot of the people there. They're not happy, but of course, it's a difficult time to get a job elsewhere. So you're seeing a lot of people stay put. But, you know. Still a they, red, they listen, still a red hot firm. A lot of MBAs want to work there, but listen, 200 West is not the same as 85 Broad, where it used to be. To your point, Lydia and Kate, very different world, one to watch. Thank you both. 
All right, coming up, South Florida on the verge of sports history, and one better stands to get paid if something that has never happened happens. Stick around. All right, time now for your daily RBI, and today the RBI is actually about sports because something could happen soon that has never happened before. NBA and NHL teams from the same sports region could win their sports titles at basically the same time. That is right. If the Miami Heat and Florida Panthers both win their titles, basketball and hockey, it'll set a sports record. It has never been done before. It's true. Some cities got close, really close. The Wall Street Journal Jason Gay notes that Boston had three chances to pull that off with the Celtics and Bruin in 1956, 57, and 73. But in all three seasons, the Bruins or both teams lost. New York almost did it in the 71, 72, and 93 to 94 seasons, but the Knicks botched it because the Knicks. Even the great sports state of New Jersey almost pulled off the double. In 2003, both the New Jersey Devils and the then New Jersey Nets got to the finals. The Nets lost. Chicago and Philly also both got close, but no one's ever done it. And what's even more remarkable about this is that neither the Panthers nor the Heat were supposed to even make it this far. They're both eight seeds, meaning the lowest seed in their respective conferences. So they both outperformed. But hey, who could doubt South Florida right now? Need we remind you, both the U of Miami and the powerhouse Florida Atlantic Owls made it to the NCAA Final Four. The Miami area is on fuego from a sports perspective. And one better is really, really hoping it stays hot. A while ago, I think mid-April, a better put a $25 bet on both teams to win the title. A parlay. Huge odds. Probably just a throwaway bet. 25 bucks, whatever. <laughs> but now it's close, and it could happen. And if it does happen, if Panthers and he both win, that $25 ticket will pay him $108,000. Now, good luck to him. He told us, he knows somebody here, that's how we found it, he is not cashing out. Despite the temptation at being 7000 bucks Right now, if you cancel the bet and cash out, you get paid 7000 on $25 or risk it and try to go for 108 So we did what any self-respecting news organization does. We put out a Twitter poll. We said, would you cash out for seven grand, or ride it, go for the loss, or the 108000 win? 62% of you said you would ride it and go for the 108000 bucks. Let's ask Barstool Sports betting analyst Kelly Stewart. Really, you know, it's so easy, Kelly, to be brave with OPM, other people's money. 7000 on 25 bucks. pretty tempting considering, you know, the heat, the, the nuggets are big favorites. What would you do? Ooh, well, I'm going to take the middle ground here, and I would say I'm going to hedge. Find somebody to loan you 50 grand. Get yourself out to Las Vegas as soon as you can and bet the other side and guarantee yourself a nice profit far overreaching the 7000 that you're going to get paid. I love it. How would, for our, for our audience that maybe are newbies, and again, just gamble with money you can afford to lose, everybody, what, what would be a good hedge on a, on, a, on a parlay bet like this? That is actually what makes it difficult, right? If one leg happened to cash, it would make it significantly easier. But because you're actually trying to hedge two legs, it is going to be harder. I always 
Full disclosure, even though I work with math every day, I always use a calculator. I would go online and figure out exactly, using a hedge calculator, how you would do it. But I would think it'd probably be close to about 60000 to guarantee yourself close to thirty-five if you did it correctly. Do you think there'd be any trouble in getting that bet? No, not in Las Vegas. Absolutely not. You could walk into probably three or four sports books. I'd even probably wager to say, if you will, uh, sportsbooks would love to take the other side uh, just because they're always trying to leverage themselves appropriately. You know, I, I like the guts of it. It's $25. You know, you think you probably just forget about it, and then all of a sudden these teams start to make the playoffs, and it's a real shot. We know that tonight I think Denver's a nine-point favorite. I think they're favored in this. They were both eight seeds. If this happens, number one, Kelly, as we just said, it would be the first time it had ever happened where two teams, and effectively, I know their, their arenas are, you know, 20 miles apart, in the same area win. How big of a sort of upset would this really be, the Heat and the Panthers? So if you parlayed them today, it actually wouldn't be that big of an upset. It'd pay about six and a half to one. Uh, listen, we can talk about underdogs all day long, but the Heat are not that big of an underdog. They're, the Nuggets are minus 385 here. If you look at it from a historic perspective, absolutely. But if you look at it from a money perspective, let's look at more recently. The Warriors were minus 900 just in 2018 over the Cavs. They are not that mm. big of an underdog. Yes, an eight seed. Yes, historic, because they're one of the first eight seeds to ever make the NBA Finals in an 82-game series. But pricing-wise... Yeah. There Just you a go. little over $3. Not bad. Kelly Stewart, Barstool Sports. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. By the way, game one of NBA tonight, Saturday's the NHL. Whoever this mystery better, good luck to you. Good luck. Hey, folks, thanks, everybody, for watching Last Call. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.